and welcome to another unexciting episode of Hashtag Pistons. I'm Joe, I'm your host, and uh, we're going to dive right into it. So, last night, obviously, Pistons beat the Bucks very handily. Um, the final score ended up being, uh, if I could get it to load, 110-87 to Pistons win. Um, it was wider than that for a lot of the game. They'd gotten it up to 30 before garbage time. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, obviously, um, the Bucks second night of back-to-back, third game in four nights on the road, et cetera, et cetera, okay? All the same things I said about the reason why the Raptors game wasn't necessarily a huge concern, but the Pistons handled them about as well as you could really reasonably expect, so you can't really complain about that. The Pistons remain a really tough matchup for the Bucks. Uh, because Stanley Johnson is a guy who can defend Giannis Antetokounmpo pretty well just because Giannis struggles to get inside on him because Stanley's just so strong and just stubborn. And then on the other side, Andre Drummond just, he's too big and strong for the Bucks. They really struggle with him. So they're, they're, they're a matchup problem for the Bucks, but still played really well. Um, the one thing that I would say is that the Bucks are not... If you can sort of manage to contain Giannis Antetokounmpo, the Bucks are not necessarily a particularly challenging team to defend, especially without Tony Snell in the lineup. They did not have a lot of shooting in that starting lineup last night. Uh, so that's just something that's worth mentioning. Although the Bucks still shot really well from three, especially early in the game. They cooled off, though. I guess really early in the game. They went totally cold, I guess. Because they were 6 of 8 at one point, I think in the first quarter. I think they went 6 of 8 from 3, and they ended up 8 of 24. So, yeah, but that's still a pretty decent percentage overall, though. But, so, I they, look, it's not, like, time to celebrate, but you get that win last night. Uh, tomorrow you're going to Orlando, and the Magic are legitimately awful. So you really ought to be able to win that, and then maybe you got something going. Then after Orlando, they turn around and play Miami, third game in four nights, which is rough. Um, But that's going to be a really important game. I'm actually curious of something. If the Pistons... Because I feel like if the Pistons win this game against Miami... They will have won the season series. Yeah, they're two and one against Miami. So if they win one more, if they win that game, yeah, that's really that's really a big game. Suddenly then. Yeah, not suddenly, but yeah, that's a big game. So the Pistons are two and one against Miami this year. So if you win that game, then they've got this the season series, which would essentially give them an extra game in the playoff standings. Because if they tie, then the Pistons would go instead. So that's something to look for there. Um, and as for... No, I haven't done my second watch of the game last night. I'm going to do that after I'm done with this. But it seemed to me that um, a big difference, I thought, was that Blake Griffin played better defensively. Um, I've highlighted his defensive struggles quite a bit. And in those second looks where I you know, make clips and such where he's really struggled to um, sort of keep up with and close out on shooters. And some of it is scheme, you know, just the fact that he's learning a new scheme, playing a very different 
role defensively than he did in L.A., and that's just sort of a, that's going to happen, it's going to be a while before he gets it all the way, but some of it is just straight up just effort and desire, and I thought that he showed a lot more fight. There were not nearly, no one's got, maybe I'll watch it again, and I like, and it'll be obvious that he actually was still closing out slow in the Bucks shit, he just was never guarding any really good shooters, which, I mean, that's possible, but it just, the last several games, there were several plays when watching it live that it was very obvious very quickly, oh, he just, like, didn't even defend this dude. And um, I didn't really notice anything like that last night. So I'm cautiously optimistic about that. And if he can do that, that would make a really big difference because it's been a major problem for the Pistons' defense um, since the trade is that Blake Griffin has just not closed out well on shooters. Um, I also really, obviously, Reggie Bullock really played a good game. Um, <laughs> uh, what was his name? Sterling Brown, who I'm pretty sure he's a rookie. Uh, he has not played a whole lot this year for the Bucks, And uh, he just was not up to the task of not losing <laughs> Reggie Bullock on back cuts, which was kind of fun. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, obviously, the big sort of... Um, bigger picture news coming out of last night was that James Ennis got put into the starting lineup. Stanley Johnson is now on the bench. Um, that's something that I kind of I came to officially say I think that this is a good idea, and I think that that's a good idea just as much for the bench mob as it is for the starters. Um, because I, Ennis obviously he can shoot, makes his starting lineup more viable offensively. And I mean, he's not Stanley Johnson, but he's still a very good defender, so you don't lose that sort of good wing defensive presence. And, you know, it just makes everything go more smoothly with the starting lineup. And then on the flip side, Stanley Johnson with the bench, I think it's just better right now. Uh, un- until he or unless he learns to really shoot with some effectiveness, I think that he just, he's better as a bench guy. He gets the ball in his hands more. I think that he gets into his own head a little bit too much with the starting lineup, um, where he's worried about trying to do too much and take the ball out of other guys' hands. When he's with the bench, he doesn't worry so much about that. He's like, I'm going to get the ball in my hands. I'm going to score. He's much more aggressive. And uh, it's just I think it just fits him better. And the other thing that I like also with um, tied into this is putting Moreland back into the rotation and then sticking with bikes, at least with bikes until... Um, Reggie Jackson comes back, is, you know, people talk a lot about things like chemistry and identity and such, and generally speaking, the less talented a group of guys are, the more important it is that they have really good chemistry and a really good identity and so on and so forth, and so that means, obviously, it matters more to a bench unit to have a good identity and have good chemistry and such than it does to starters often, because starters, there's more talent, so it's less important that you have those things, right? And when you have Dwight Bikes, Stanley Johnson, and Eric Moreland on the floor together with those bench units, those are three guys that all have a real FU streak on defense. They just they play their tails off. They just, they're just scrappy fighters who are all pretty decent athletes. And I really like that feel for the bench crew. I just do. They're guys who they keep coming. They're relentless. Like Dwight Bikes and Stanley Johnson just continue to attack the basket, even if it doesn't always work. Eric Moreland is going to continue to go for rebounds. He's going to continue to contest you defensively. Like, I just, I like the feel of that. Um, just the fact that they just, 
you've got a, you've got a real identity with that bench crew, and that's one of the benefits I think of of putting those guys out there together, is. And, you know, and then you can throw in Anthony Tolliver also, and even though I don't think anyone would say Anthony Tolliver has a FU streak, I don't think he's got a mean bone in his body, but he's another guy who sort of plays with this sort of fanatical energy a lot of the time, so he can contribute to that too. So I think that the bench mob makes more sense with that. Um, and then also sort of long-term, here's sort of the thought process with using Moreland instead of using Blake Griffin as... As the backup center. So first off, there's that whole thing that I just said. Then on top of that, those guys have actually played together more this season, so there's more chemistry and such. They're more comfortable together. And here's the other thing, is that Blake Griffin never really has played center in his career. The Clippers really never used him as that. They pretty much used him exclusively as a power forward. And so the thought process may just be Blake Griffin is already having to adjust to a totally new team new coach, new system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, new city. Everything is new, and it happened in a flash, right? Like, he hasn't even been in Detroit a month yet, right? Has it been a month? I don't think it's been a month. Maybe it's, it actually probably has been a month. But he hasn't been in Detroit for very long. So he's adjusting to all of these things. And so you might just figure, you know, the bench crew with him at center is not working. We're just trying to give him one too many things. Just we're just going to use him in roles that he's more familiar with, just playing as the power forward, and then you know revisit having him do the backup center thing down the road. I think that's the right thing to try and do going long term. Um, it allows you to split um, Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin more to play, so as one of them's always on the floor. I also like the potential for that if you use Blake Griffin as the backup center. He's your backup center, too, then. So, you know, you can almost say, okay, so instead of paying, you know, because it goes up as it goes on by a lot. So instead of paying 30-some million dollars for your starting power forward, you're paying 30-some million dollars between your starting power forward and your backup center. So and it's just a way that it just helps psychologically a little bit with that, you know. But I think that there's a lot of potential for those lineups. But... You may just say, you know what, because here's the other thing, is that for all the grief that we gave Eric Moreland, which much of it is well-deserved, that he had not, that he's not all that good, which, once again, well-deserved, and as much as since Reggie Jackson has went down, the backup point guard minutes have been spotty, to say the best. Dwight Bikes has had some good moments, Langston Galloway had some good moments, both those guys had some really bad moments, Jameer Nelson pretty much only had bad moments. Right, but so you've got that right. Even with that, the Pistons bench has stayed pretty good most of the season before the before the trade. And the reality is that you may just say, you know what, we kind of had a system that worked where with Moreland and those other guys, we're just going to have them go out there. They're going to play defense like crazy. They're not going to score a lot, but they'll get out and transition and do some stuff, and it kind of works. And we're just gonna we're not going to put this extra thing on Blake Griffin's plate. We're just going to shelve that for now. We'll revisit it this offseason and let him get actually comfortable with it. For now, we're going to just not make him do that and focus on other things. And I think that that's a thought process that I can get behind, and it um, it makes sense, you know? So, yeah, so that's with that. Um, the other thing, though, so with them putting James Ennis in the starting lineup, I think I've talked about this at least a little bit before, but I'd like to get a little bit more into it is that going forwards, 
the challenge for the Pistons and the and the front office, whether it's Stan Van Gundy and Jeff Bauer or someone else, is not trying to get Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin to fit together. They will fit together. They do fit together. We know that Blake Griffin can work with a guy like Andre Drummond, and Andre Drummond is better than DeAndre Jordan is. So we know that that can work. The challenge is going to be that Blake Griffin has paid a ton of money, Andre Drummond has paid a ton of money, and then between John Luer and Reggie Jackson, you've got quite a bit of money locked up into a couple other guys. So basically, they obviously, right, everybody knows this, the Pistons do not have a lot of cap flexibility in this situation. And the challenge is going to be finding two-way players to put around them. Because just with the nature of Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin, you it's hard to have one-way guys out there. So, like, because Blake Griffin, I, he's not as bad as he's been with the Pistons, but he's not a very good defender. He sort of tops out as a pretty decent one most of the time. When he's really locked in, he can be pretty good, but for the most part, he's just kind of, he's okay. Um, Andre Drummond's become better this year. He's not all the way there yet. He's very good, though. And then, obviously, neither of them are good shooters on offense. Um, Andre Drummond's a really good offensive player, but in sort of unique ways. Blake Griffin is a brilliant offensive player, but he's not a good shooter. Right? So with that, it means that you kind of have to have those other three positions be able to shoot, and you also it kind of have to make sure that they bring some defense between those three positions. So like, just as a for instance, let's say that the... Who would be the best example? Let's say that the Pistons, instead of Blake Griffin... It was um, Al Horford, for instance, just because the Pistons actually got a meeting with him a couple of years off seasons ago. Um, now, Al Horford's actually so malleable that this isn't necessarily the best example, but whatever. We'll ignore how like he can fit in anywhere on offense because he's just so good at everything. But he's such a good defensive player that, especially after the improvement Andre Drummond has made this season, you could look at Drummond, you could look at them and just go, you know what? These two guys, they are so good together defensively that we can afford to just focus on dudes who can shoot and do offensive things at those other three spots because we have Andre Drummond and Al Horford, so legitimately one of the better defensive front court combinations in the NBA. And so you could play like, you know, Reggie Bullock and Luke Kennard as you're starting three and two and then roll with Reggie Jackson, obviously, at point guard and probably be fine defensively as a unit. Obviously, you'd have some trouble with bigger wing scores and such still. And there'd be times where you'd want Stanley Johnson or James Ennis or whatever to play more. But you could just say, you know what, these guys are so good defensively that you can afford to just put guys out there who can score because those two up front are so good that they can cover up for a lot of mistakes. Um, And then on a flip side, like if instead of Blake Griffin it was – Let's just say that they gotten Kevin Love, for instance, okay? He's he's a really good shooter, and he's such a good offensive player that then you could more easily play Stanley Johnson, you know, and just say, well, Stanley Johnson can't really shoot, but we got Kevin Love. We don't actually need that much more offense out here. We need guys who can defend because it's going to be a challenge to build a good defense with those two as your front court because Andre Drummond's good, but he's not, like, he's not all-world good where he's going to cover up for everyone's mistakes. Kevin Love isn't as bad as people make him out to be on defense, but he's certainly not that good. 
You know, so that's sort of what it, where it would be. With Griffin and Drummond, the challenge isn't getting those two to fit. The challenge is getting guys around them to fit without a lot of flexibility. So, and this has been a problem already that's been shown, is that, so for instance, um, the Pistons have really struggled to score when they have enough defense on the floor, but then when they put more shooters on the floor, generally they suddenly give up just hemorrhage points. And basically, this has kind of been the problem with Blake Griffin at center, is that lineups with Griffin but not Drummond and Stanley Johnson have largely just hemorrhaged points. And it's really kind of been a problem. And, uh, you know, it's... So it's kind of and it, it, to the point that where there you lose any gains that you've made offensively, and the thing that's funny is the starting lineup before last night of Ishmith, Stanley Johnson, Reggie Bullock, Andre Drummond, Blake Griffin. Even after last night, it's actually getting wider. That's still by far been the Pistons. That's been the Pistons' best heavy usage lineup. Admittedly, that's by far the most heavy usage. And you think to yourself, why do they keep doing this? There's no shooting. There's no spacing. The offense is ugly. It's like they're defending well enough that it's working. And they're struggling to find the mix of, you know, putting some shooting on the floor so that it isn't just awful offense while still being able to defend well enough that you're not just giving it all away. So that's kind of, that's the line that they're having to try and walk. Um, and obviously with all of these, you're working with small sample sizes. Right, So, like, there is a lineup without Andre Drummond. So, Blake Griffin, Stanley Johnson, Reggie Bullock, Ishmith, Anthony Tolliver. That lineup work, has worked pretty well. They've played it in six games. It's played 21 minutes, and it's plus 23 net rating. But they've played 21 minutes, you know? So, it's like, how much can you read into that? And I've mentioned this before, but that's the reason why this whole situation and as a coaching situation is so difficult. Um, because... They, uh, because you have to make decisions based on really small sample sizes. So, for instance, right, I truthfully think that when Stan Van Gundy ran out the starting lineup of Andre Drummond, Blake Griffin, Reggie Bullock, Stanley Johnson, Ish Smith, I don't think he thought that was a long-term solution. Uh, I, because no one really did, honestly. Uh, he, they, they'd said before that they liked Stanley Johnson coming off the bench. I think they intended to move him back to the bench fairly soon. But he figured at first, at least, you know, whatever, this is kind of what we have to do because obviously they hadn't made the James Ennis trade or anything. And then after the trade, they didn't want to rush Ennis into the starting lineup right away. And then it just so happened that that lineup was the one that's working. So you're in a tough spot because it's like, well, you know, in I'm not sure that this is going to work long term because, like, can you really defend that absurdly well that you can be awful offensively and still be a pretty significant positive. Like, is that really something you want to hope for? But on the other hand, it's working. So you don't really have time to complain about something working or not. And so it's sort of a combative thing. So it's like, this lineup should work well, right? But if it doesn't work, like, you don't have a lot of time to hope that it starts to regress to the mean, you know? So that's going to be the challenge going forward, is finding a way to get two-way players around those two guys. because So Blake Griffin needs to have good defenders around him, especially if he's playing center. Um, Andre Drummond needs to have guys who can handle the ball around him because Andre Drummond can do a lot of things, but he can't really... He's not a creator 
right? Now, I mean, he kind of is a creator just because he draws attention when wherever he goes on the floor, so there's an extent to which he's a creator, but not with the ball in his hands. He kind of needs to have those people on the floor who can create looks with the ball in their hands. Blake Griffin needs guys on the floor who can shoot and also are not going to be total sieves defensively because he's certainly not... If he's playing center, he's definitely not going to be covering up for a lot of defensive mistakes behind him. <coughs> Excuse me. And so that's that's the challenge um, going forward. So well, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I like I like the lineup change, though. So, um, you know, the next game they're going to be in Orlando. Orlando's awful. They should be able to win that, I think. Um, Orlando has lost one, two, three, four, five, six, seven in a row, which is very bad. Although I suppose on the other hand, they beat the Pistons. Did they beat the Pistons? How long ago would that have been? No, they must have lost to the Pistons. Huh. I had it in my head that they'd beaten the Pistons recently. And yet here it's telling me that they didn't. Unless it was longer ago than I thought. Whatever, that's really, really, really off topic. But, um, yeah, so you should be able to win that. And then at that point, you've made a bit of a comeback. They really kind of, and I always struggle to say, you know, this is a must-win game because it's like, even this late in the season, it's kind of, these aren't really must-wins, but the next two games are games that you really want to have. And it's tough because they're going to be on the road on a back-to-back. And once again, third game in four nights, that's going to be tough. And they're going to be playing, let's see, so this last night was their fourth game in six nights. Then they got to get a day off. So four games in seven nights, five and eight nights, six games in nine nights will be that, that Miami game. Oh my gosh, that is brutal. Um, but if you can do that, then you got a couple tough games. You're going to Cleveland, and you've got Toronto again. And then you got Chicago, and then Reggie Jackson hopefully comes back. So I think these are two games that you really... It's not must-win, especially because Miami has been falling off recently. But it's getting closer to that point, I think. You know, um, where they kind of... It's tough to... You, you got to start winning these games because Orlando's a winnable game and that Miami game is just a really important one for their playoff hopes. Um, I'm still mostly holding out that Reggie Jackson's going to come back and he's going to be, and they're going to start to kill people. Um, the only problem is that that's not an easy West Coast trip when he comes back. They'll be playing at Utah, at Denver, at Portland, at Sacramento, at Phoenix, at Houston. Whew. Um, obviously Phoenix and Sacramento are not good, but you get Phoenix and Sacramento on a back-to-back, of course, so your easiest games are on a back-to-back. They're like, ugh. I mean, Utah's not great, but they're not pushovers. Denver's not great, but they're good. Portland's very good. Houston's obviously awesome. Oof. That's going to be rough. So the one thing that is a benefit to the Pistons is their second-to-last game of the season is against Toronto, and you can kind of hope that um, that Toronto has already secured their spot at that point, at which point uh, they may not play their guys, so maybe that's an easier game. They've got Chicago for their last game of the year. Their last two games are Memphis, Toronto, Chicago. So, in theory, actually four games. We'll go, yeah. 
So their last four games of the season, Dallas, Memphis, Toronto, Chicago. Um, so if you say, hypothetically, Toronto secures their spot, which maybe they will, maybe they won't, but if they do that and they don't play their guys and they're resting, there's a very good chance that the Pistons could finish the year on a four-game winning streak there, which would be big. And, you know, with the Pistons' schedule the rest of the way, it's a little bit tough to judge it because on one hand, they don't, let's see, they get Cleveland once more and they get they get Cleveland once more, they get Toronto twice, and they've got Houston once more. Right? Obviously, those are all really good teams. But other than that, they actually, just in terms of the quality of opponents, it's not that difficult, but it's a lot of road games. So, I don't know. Um, I'm still guessing that the Pistons are going to make it. I'm leaning that way still. But um, they might not, though. And here's one thing about that. So I've seen a lot of people because there was a there have been a couple of articles written about how um, you know the front office is quietly starting to focus on next season, and a lot of people have made a big deal about that. Um, and I'm not sure why because there were look. Let me make something clear. I want them to make the playoffs this year badly. They should be hoping to make the playoffs this year badly, but. I'm pretty sure, like, most people who, and most people who are worth listening to at least, um, you know, realize, and the Pistons even said this, this move was not about we're trying to make the playoffs this year. This is a long-term move. Like, I know that right away I said, you have to think bigger picture than just trying to make the playoffs this year. You have to think about, you know, you've got Blake Griffin now for the next, what, five years? So you've got to think bigger picture. Like, Zach Lowe, I know right afterwards, he... He mostly liked the trade for the Pistons. He's like, you know, this is probably going to be good for them. They may not win a championship out of it, but they'll probably be a good team. And he was like, they pro- he he guessed that they probably wouldn't make the playoffs just because they were too far out. Um, I know several of the people at Piston Powered, I know Sham said at least that he figured that they wouldn't make the playoffs, and that was okay. He was like, they probably won't make the playoffs this year, but that's all right. Um, obviously, you want to make the playoffs this year, but... Some of the people who are acting like, oh my gosh, if they don't make the playoffs here, what a disaster. They were like, what, four games out when they made the trade? Three, four games out? With, like, that's a significant, that's a significant deficit there. So, I just, I'm not that panicked about it. I think they should, they, they're going to try and make it, obviously, but um, I don't know for sure about that. So, then there's one other thing that got, I should address before I finish up here. I'm sorry, I didn't take as many notes to prepare myself as I should have. I apologize for that. <laughs> but so, the uh, there was a report yesterday some that someone made that um, that uh, the that if Stan Van Gundy doesn't make the play that if they do not make the playoffs this year, that Stan Van Gundy is going to be fired. That's something that he said, and he also said that in all likelihood, <coughs> that in all likelihood, he's going to be relieved of his um, president of basketball operations duties. Um, the guy was, uh, what's this guy's name? Mitch Lawrence, I think, um, who appears to be a, he's a satellite radio host with like 4,000 Twitter followers. And I, I still haven't seen this reported anywhere else. 
I haven't seen any of the local guys comment on it. So I would be, I would take that report with a big grain of salt. Um, the guy suggests that Arn Tellum is going to be, is waiting in the wings and going to be taking over, um, as, at least as GM. He's been the vice president for a while. And, I mean, that's something that I guess I could see. And one thing that's worth mentioning is that I remember right away when Stan Van Gundy took the job, a lot of people, I don't know if he ever directly addressed it, but a lot of people already suggested that he wasn't really planning on keeping both coaching and basketball operations forever. Like, even if things everything went well, like, he was kind of figuring on transitioning to just one at some point. So I wouldn't be shocked if they if he decided he just wanted to coach going forward, or if they decided you're just going to coach going forwards. But um, I, I hope that they don't, that they do not actually have the ultimatum, make the playoffs or you're fired. Uh, I would hope that the, uh, that the, the organization is smart enough to know that that's just a dumb thing to do. If you want to fire Stan Van Gundy, fire him, whether he makes the playoffs or not. Like, I mean, if they make the playoffs, by one game, or by no games, basically, right? So let's say they win this game against Miami, so they have the tiebreaker. So they finish the season with the same record, but make the playoffs. But Miami continues to free fall, and they don't look very good. They get swept in the first round, right? But then if you flip it on the other side, Pistons start to play better down the stretch. Reggie Jacks comes back. They look awesome. But the Heat also start to surge, and they miss the playoffs by a game. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you shouldn't make... Basically, the point is... You shouldn't make, uh, I, I'm kind of thinking I might write like a whole piece on this where obviously I go more in depth, but like you shouldn't make the decision based purely on if you're going to grab the eighth seed or not, you know, like that's just, that's just not a good way to run things. If you think Stan Van Gundy is worth keeping, keep him. And obviously how close he may get to a playoff berth may affect whether or not he's worth it. It's like if they continue to free fall and they miss the playoffs by like, you know, what, like seven or eight games, okay, maybe that's worth looking at. Or if they, like, go on a huge surge and, like, they end up snagging, I don't know what what, what the highest realistic point would be. Let's just say they go on an absolute tear and they get the sixth seed and win a playoff series. Obviously, that shifts things in his favor. But, I mean, if they're close to the eighth seed either way, you shouldn't be making that decision based on whether or not they were one game over or under the heat, you know? It's just make that decision based on whether or not you think that he's done a good enough job that he's worth giving the last season of his contract. Um, and I think that's the way that you you have to approach that. So I really hope that that's not the way that they are. Um, because on one hand, if they barely make the playoffs but aren't looking good, and, you know, they're still struggling to implement Blake. Reggie Jackson and Blake are not playing well together, et cetera, et cetera. I'd be much more inclined to fire him. But it's like, well, he made the playoffs, so we're going to keep him. Like, that's just a, it's just not a good way to operate. So I think that's going to be it for today. A little bit over a half hour. So everybody stay beautiful and go Pistons.